So we're going we're gonna to dive in. Uh, actually, the vision for the year, interestingly enough, I've said it, but I want to repeat it again, is just going to be vision uh, for the next 12 months of this year, because I know we're used to probably going to churches that talk, this is the vision for the year, and then like talk about it for like a month, and then never talk about it again. And they come back around around Christmas and be like, we were right, it was always the vision. And it's like, I forgot that this was what we were talking about. Uh, we're actually going to spend the whole year really buckling down and really just hitting the basics and the foundation of why this church is what it is, what we're called to do, in anticipation for the fact that as we begin to walk into it, we're prepared as it grows and it gets bigger and it gets ready. Um, something Michael Todd said that I think is important is that if you choose to go to a church, the church's vision should also leak its way into your home. Um, and so I would ask the same thing, that as I'm really embracing the vision of the church God called me to, how is the vision in my home? Is it clear cut? Is it ready? A lot of pastors I'll hear preach, they talk about how they have sayings and slogans with their families and stuff. And uh, we've actually already begun that a little bit in, in our own home. You know, like I, I always tell little baby Titus, I'm like, we're Henry's and we love people, we're kind to people, and we look out for those who are lost. Like, it's just something I always tell my son because I'm just kind of vision casting and believing that he'll grow up used to that. Amen. Uh, and that's just something, and he'll just, he'll get mad. I'll be like, that wasn't very loving, and what are we? We're like, we're Henry's, we're loving. And then, like, I'm just ready for that. And so I'm just, I'm just like, I'm, I'm pouring that in now and believing that vision is going to have to be in my house as well as in my house. Amen. And uh, by the way, I would love that to be a saying here as well, that we're loving, we're kind, and we look out for those who are lost. Um, that's important. It's biblical, and it's it's who we are. Amen. Um but, but vision's a big deal, and I want to take us to the verse that we'll meditate on the entire time. Um, is that me? Awesome. It's going to be Habakkuk 2.2. It's the verse that everyone used three weeks ago, and I'm three weeks late. Uh, and the Lord answered me. Me is Habakkuk. Usually when I get, and who is me? They'll be like, Jesus. It was Habakkuk this time. Um, and the Lord answered me, write the vision. Y'all say, write the vision. Make it plain. Y'all say make it plain. So he may run who reads it. So, so here's what we're seeing. I'm so scared what just happened. Okay, I'm back. Uh, so is that like a fire alarm like was beginning that thought about it and then didn't? What was that? Was that you? Man, you're all about it today, bro. Just kick the kicks off. <laughs> um. Okay, I'm back. Okay, and the Lord answered me, write the vision. What's our thought, right? We're, we're writing it down for anyone to see. Make it plain so it's easy to follow so that may, they may run because vision isn't there for us to look at it and go, yeah, that's, that's what we believe. Uh, and I think our church has done that for a while. And the reason I can say that is our slogan is on your street and in your city. And raise your hand if this last week you're on the streets praying for people. <laughs> right. So I really want us to start living the vision and not just be like, yeah, we're both of our church. We're on your street and in your city. But I'm going home because I'm tired and I had a big work week. And my wife made food, so I'm going to go home and eat and take a nap and get the lint out of my belly button. Uh, but no, but he wants to, to write it down and make it plain for anyone to see. And so why is he writing? Uh, because oftentimes vision, uh, even though we all have individual things God is telling us, typically corporately, we have things that we're all supposed to do together. And if you look across the entirety of the biblical map, you'll see it's a very consistent thing God does is he begins to speak to leaders and demands that they make it plain. Right. And so what you see is the writing comes from the leader, the making it plain is for the person and then the running is for everybody. Right. And so 
that's the point of today. We are going to really plot out, plot out what Boulevard Church was going to focus on for the next year. And, um, and probably and possibly even years after, but for sure this year, 2020. So I'm going to pray us in. And we're going to run. All right, dear Lord in heaven, I thank you for everyone in this room, God. I thank you that no one's here on accident, God, that you didn't call someone here just to hear something about a vision, a specific vision, and then and then run out, Father God, but that you've placed something specifically on people. Uh, God, I thank you in all of your good grace that you made this impossible for one person to, to do alone. And in your glory and in your wisdom, God, you called us to be united, to have all things in common, and to do your will together as family lord in jesus name i pray amen uh, so when i first got out of high school um i decided to start getting my life together um i always made fun of a girl that i knew because she didn't get her license until she was 20 and i didn't get mine until i was 21 uh but see i didn't know that back when i was making fun of her as an 18 year old um i i i, I genuinely started life uh, so much more behind uh, than most people do. Everything, it's like, oh, the only thing I did right, like, early was get a job. I had a job when I was 12. Outside of that, I did everything else really late. Uh, I didn't get a license till I was 21, didn't get a car till I was 21. Uh, but it's funny, because in that year where everything started happening, it, it all happened. So the same year that I got, <laughs> the same year that I got this license and I got this car, I got a full-time job, I moved out on my own. I, you know, it, it all just went um, like a zero to a hundred. Um, and in a very short time, I went from dating my girlfriend to being engaged to my girlfriend to being married. That was like a six-month process. Uh, it really wasn't this, this long, drawn-out thing. My life began to run really quick. And something really funny about that time is, you know, typically when a bunch of people don't have jobs, all those people find each other and hang out, and then it becomes like this thing where no one has jobs, and it just becomes this, this bad, bad group to hang out with because now all of our negatives stay together. And you notice the kids who don't have cars typically are the ones walking in the street together because no one knows how to make a friend with a car because he's too cool to hang out with you, right? Uh, and so we have all these things, and I was the first one of us to break out. And so I was driving people everywhere. It sucked. I didn't want to hang out with any of them anymore. I had, a, I had a friend that was like, yo, because you're driving me everywhere, your car will never hit empty. And then whenever I'd be like, okay, cool, so I'm, I'm getting low. Can you fill me up? He's like, well, I mean, you're always putting me out. And I'm like, cool, I'll give you a ride to work, bud. Right? And so, like, uh, it really began to happen. It really began to, <laughs> to do these things. And, but something would always happen whenever we start getting towards red lights or, or, or things and I wouldn't slow down. They'd be like, yo, dude, uh, hit your brake. And I'd be like, oh, really? And I'd hit my brake. And we begin to drive, and people would be like, uh, dude, you're about to hit this car. And I'm like, oh, dang, and I'd veer out of the way like I was a crazy driver. And then one day, I was like, I have done all the things adults have done except one thing. I don't have glasses. <laughs> and so even though I was driving people around, even though, even though I was working, I was doing all these things, I couldn't see anything. And not only was I going to kill myself, I was going to kill all the people that jumped on board with me. I'll never forget the day I showed up with glasses. Thomas, <laughs> he took my glasses and put them on and yelled, exclaimed, good Lord, is this how bad your vision is? And was just like, you've been driving me for a year. And I'm like, yeah, we almost died so many times. Like, it's ridiculous how many times we all almost died together. That's why I hate when people drive me because I'm always sitting there and I'm like, my life is in your hands. 
And I learned real quick. I think I, I thought I trusted people, but every time in the passenger seat, I went, nope, I don't trust anybody, right? Like, I want to trust people. Every time my wife drives, I'm like, hit the brakes, hit the brakes, hit the brakes. And she's like, fine. She's like, what? I always drive like this. I'm like, that's the problem. Uh, <laughs> But did you die? That's the, I believe that's what I said to you. I think that was the exact thing I said to him when he's like, is this how bad your vision? I was like, but, but did you die? Um, and so it's funny. Uh, because people were jumping on board with me and because I was taking people, interestingly enough, because my vision was bad, all of the things I was doing to mature were things that were probably going to kill me. All right, because just because you've done the thing, if you don't have the right vision, it's still bad for you. Or as an old pastor of mine used to say, the right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. Right? And so you could find the one and ruin it because you weren't mature enough. And even though God had given you every step of the way to be mature, you weren't mature enough. And so you ruined a good thing because the right thing at the wrong time became the wrong thing, right? My wife and I dated and broke up because she was just too immature. I had to get, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's because I was still a high schooler in a 20-something-year-old's body, right? I was still probably a middle schooler, to be honest, because um, at least high school lures have licenses, um, <laughs> right? And, but, but when we circled back by the time she had come back and we started dating again i was living on my own with friends right roommates but that's the process right? it's, that's still good steps in the right direction i had my own car i had a license i had a full-time job i was paying bills i wasn't depending on people anymore except for the fact that we all even our full-time jobs weren't enough and so we're like hey we're depending on each other so we can all pay a bill together uh, i really had taken a lot of steps and the next time we got together, my wife and I did, um, we dated and quickly got engaged and quickly got married. <laughs> and then very slowly, four years later, had a kid. But that's just because on our honeymoon, I made a bad joke. And so we didn't, we didn't have a kid till four years later. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I stand by that joke. It's hilarious. Y'all didn't laugh, but, but I'll tell it every chance I get. Um, but, but, but vision, like I said, my lack of vision even though I was moving forward, my lack of vision was still going to kill me and all the people dumb enough to jump on board. But let's face it, when you're, right, he points at himself, right? Uh, but how bad do you have to be in life to jump on board with someone with no vision? Right, what does that say about your vision or your future or your awareness of what it's time for you to do, right? And so what's important is that when we come together in moments like this and really make it plain, because what happens is now we all know where the car's going. We all trust that the people driving the car at least know where they're going, kind of, because I'm still making this up as I go. But I really believe God's talking about it. Um, and so there's still that thing, and I think it's important that we talk about it. But I want to give another verse from Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. And that says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. Interesting, when you see that word, where there is no prophetic vision, that's actually just one Greek word. That whole little mini sentence. What? Right, Hebrew, Old Testament. Thank you, buddy. It is just one Hebrew word. I forget what the Hebrew word is, but what it means is revelation. And so it's not, when it says prophetic vision, this is the ESV because clearly when you have revelation back in the old days, it's because God was directly talking. Uh, as we begin to understand that this proverb still applies to us now that people who don't have revelation, who they don't know what direction they're going, they cast off restraint. And so again, you'll find people who 
who don't go to church because them and God have a deal. The problem is they have no revelation on the truth of what God sees church as. And so they cast off restraint and they eventually fall apart and fall away. Right. And so when we begin to really say, yes, I love Jesus. And when we get to get to know him on a personal, intimate level, we start to get revelation of where he's taking us. And I think God really called us. Everyone's really big on this is my personal call. But if you go into the Bible and really look at all these characters, there was no one dedicated to like, this is my call. It was definitely like, oh, we're a group and here's our call, right? When people would say, hey, Paul, you're called to the, the outsiders, right? You're called to the Gentiles. They didn't say Paul was called to the Gentiles. They said Paul and Barnabas and Silas. And there's this group of people and they say, you guys are called to the outsiders. And the group went together. And yes, God was talking to Paul, the guy, the crew, but the crew as a whole were all called together to one place. You don't see lonely people in the calling of God in the New Testament because God unified us together. Do we have moments where we're alone because we get separated and thrown into prisons? Yes, but this is America and outside of that, we're together and we stand together and we, we fight together, but really our fighting is just we step back and let God fight for us while we pray and be like, right, everyone reads the story of David. It's like, oh, I'm David. It's like, no, you're the Israelites that are scared in the corner. Jesus is David fighting Goliath and we're just like, how could this little guy think he can, oh, he did, I knew the whole time, right? And that's what we always do. How could God pay him? Oh, he paid rent? All right, I knew the whole time. I'm blessed, highly favored, got faith for days. Oh, someone got sick, I have to pay a hospital bill? Where is God? Oh, he paid the bill? Okay, cool. See, I knew the whole time, right? And that's what happens. Uh, but we don't have prophetic vision and we don't have revelation. We always forget that maybe this time God's going to do something. But if we have a true revelation of who our God is, right, uh, we don't doubt the people he's called us to. And we don't doubt the places he's called us to. And we don't even doubt the speed bumps along the way. Amen. Amen. And so for our church, we're going to focus on five things this whole year. We're going to put pause on anything that doesn't directly pour in to this. And here's what this is going to do. It's going to help us, one, unite. Because if there are 70 different things in here, no one's going to get anything done. But if 70 people circle around five things, a lot's going to get done. <laughs> Amen. Um, and, and I think that if you're a person who has been a perpetual attender, I want to encourage you uh, that attenders may see the vision, but they don't have the vision. You can't have something unless it's in your hands. And in the kingdom, it's not in your hands unless you're out with people grabbing it. Amen. And so I want to encourage people who they come, but they're not here. I, I want to encourage you to maybe pray on what is God calling me to do in relation to a group, right? And, and I think the mentality of reading the Bible and seeing yourself in the, the main character or seeing yourself in the Bible hero, I think that mentality is actually destructive. Um, I am a very individualistic person, uh, just in my own right and in my own desires. I like being alone. I like doing my own thing. I like, anytime I watch a TV show, I always like, like sympathize with the main character, but it's mostly just because they're the main character, right? And, I, and it's just like, because the center's on them and my center's on me. I'll never forget one time a teacher was in class and she was yelling at all the students. And then she, it was, we were like in third grade and she yelled, the world doesn't revolve around you guys. And there was one kid in my class who just started busting up laughing. And, and 
And she looks, she goes, what's wrong? He goes, my shirt, my shirt. And his shirt was a picture of a little person with the world around him. And the title of the shirt said, it's been scientifically proven the world revolves around me. And it was just the best thing in the world, right? We all laughed. And actually, she stopped yelling at us because it was that funny. Um, but I think many of us actually operate and live that way. But the beauty of the kingdom is, no, the spotlight doesn't have to be on you anymore. You don't have to be outperforming by yourself anymore. You don't have to be the center of it where things fall apart. They fall apart because of you. And if they work, they work because of you. We don't need that kind of pressure. Jesus said, cast it off to me. Join a community and lift this thing together. Right? And there's beauty in that. There's vision in that. But what does that also mean? There's going to be compromise. There's going to be humility. You're going to have to be kind. You're going to have to really love. But in truth, everyone wants to be that anyway. They just don't like the process that leads to that. But you want, you want to be a loving person? Yeah. Not many people would say no. You want to be humble? I am humble. I'm also anointed and amazing, right? But so like, it's just like the ideal person that everyone deep down wants to be is humble, is loving, and is awesome. Um, but our five things are going to be Sunday service, kids ministry, groups, outreach, and prayer. And I want to go over each one in specifics. Take us to the Bible and really say, why, why does this matter? Amen. So firstly and foremost, Sunday service. Uh, the local church is why Jesus died. He died to bring his bride into the church because the bride is filled with his Holy Spirit. And when a group of people are all filled with the fullness of God, it is, as Jesus put it, better than if he would have stayed. Amen. So I want to take us to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Uh, not neglecting to meet together, as is a habit of some, some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Uh, Paul is rebuking a group of people because they stopped coming around each other weekly and worshiping God together weekly and having communion and worshiping and praying together. Uh, the right... Oh, Maybe not Paul. We actually don't know who wrote Hebrews. Uh, but the writer of Hebrews is dealing with this church because he's basically saying you're not a church. You're not united. You're not meeting together. And it's funny because the book of Hebrews has so many kicks in the pants to the people who say, I don't need the church, right? Me and God are the church. Or we're two or more together. There he is in the midst of us. So us three are together, so we're fine. But that Bible verse is about an elder coming and rebuking people. And so it's like, no, you're not in the situation where two or more are gathered because there's no elder there. And that's Jesus who taught that verse, right? And so we take verses out of context because we desperately want to believe something. But God really built the local church to be the heartbeat of a city. The one thing we're doing wrong in modern times is I don't believe there's supposed to be so many churches. But what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Unity is a big deal, and it's definitely not here. But it does need to start in a home setting like this. Unity, if, if we can't unite, then we can't unite with other churches in the city. And what's important first and foremost is that we come together. Uh, Francis Chan actually has a quote that I really like. He says, God's church is not a social club. It is not a building, and it is not an option. The church is life and death. The church is God's strategy for reaching the world. What we do inside the church matters. What we do inside the church matters. It's not just going to church on Sunday. It's not just, oh, I don't want to go, but I'm going to go anyway. There's so much more to it than that. It's about us uniting. It's, it's about, secretly, it's about us liking each other. 
And that doesn't happen unless you push with each other. And let me tell you, as you headbutt and as you get offended, but as you stay, you draw closer to those people. I used to teach a youth ministry. And it's funny, the only kids from that time that are still really nice with me and are still really cool with me are the ones that I yelled at the loudest, <laughs> right? Are the ones that I took on the drive and was like, why are you being terrible? Are the ones that we really spent the worst time with. Like the, this week, one of the kids that I used to disciple preached at another church. And actually sent me a recording of his sermon and was like, thank you for everything you've done. Well, that kid is someone that I've yelled at, that I have kicked, that I have, right? It was some of the kids that I was the harshest on. Because confrontation breeds unity. The people that annoy you the most are typically the people you love the most. And if God didn't make us like that, we wouldn't like our kids very much. Because I love my son. But he's annoying. <laughs> Cute as a button, though, but annoying, right? And so I just love him so much, and he cries, and my wife's like, oh, how cute. And I'm like, it's annoying, but it's cute. Like, I don't get it, but I'm going to hold you, and I'm going to hug you because you're so adorable, right? And, and so it's like these communities, the conflict isn't a sign to leave. Conflict is a sign that God's drawing us closer because people who haven't conflicted with each other, they won't stand strong when other attacks begin to come, Right? Um, I read a book a long time ago about, uh, by a long time ago, I mean like a year ago, uh, all those year ago. Um, and it was a, the character was a spear fighter from back in the olden days. And, uh, he, he lost his spear and he ran into an area that had a ton of spears and it said that he was looking for the right spear to grab. And, uh, there was a whole wall of spears that were brand new. And he said that a bunch of the younger recruits were grabbing them. And then he said, see, you can tell when they're when they're green, you can tell when they're fresh because why would you grab a spear that's never been tested? And so his whole thing was he looks for the spears with the deepest gashes and the deepest cuts because he knows those ones are the ones that will survive battle because they've proven they already can. And so what's interesting is I think we as people and we as a community are that way, right? See, the church, a lot of times, I left church because I was so offended. I know, but didn't something build in you as you came back anyway, as you kept pushing anyway, as you made amends, as you reached out and put yourself in a situation to finally have peace with these people that were annoying you? Wasn't that something that built so much strength in you? Didn't you get to be Jesus in a situation where otherwise you would have left that person just like everyone else has left that person? But I finally get a beautiful opportunity. The local church is amazing. And once we unify, we can finally go out and do the other four things we're going to talk about. We can finally impact the kids. And we can go out to the city and help those in need. And we can finally feed the homeless. Because two people aren't going to feed the homeless in the city. But a group coming together, bringing their funds together, paying for something in unity to go out and help those with less. It's only possible in a group. And the group is us. Amen. What I love about this church there is not a single tither here who, if you left, we couldn't afford things anymore. This church is filled with everyone who gives enough. Could it be more? Absolutely. But, uh, but th there's no one here who makes or breaks the bank. And so whenever we pay for things, it literally is only because a group of people all came together. Every single time. It's awesome. 
But if you want to pay for the ministry, you can. Uh, we're going to go to kids' ministry next. Uh, verse 2, I'm just kidding, but, you know, it's like, when he, no, you're not. Um, kids' ministry. Kids' ministry is vital. Kids are the future, right? Uh, Jesus came and died for us, and he gave this analogy of a seed falling, and he says that as the plant dies, seeds are scattered. And he began to teach about why caring about the generations is more important than caring about yourself now. I've said it before. I want to build a church that our kids' ministry are the leaders, and we're gone. I don't want Boulevard Church to be gone in 50 years. I just want it to be ran by that ministry that's over there now. Legacy's important. Something I love about the Catholic Church, even though I'm not Catholic, I'm a Protestant protesting the Catholic Church, um, but the something, they have a thousand-year plans. They have a thousand-year plans. That's ridiculous. That's faith. We should do the same thing. Amen. But kids ministry, we see Mark chapter 10, verse 13 to 14. Mark chapter 10, verse 13 to 14. And they were bringing children to him. Who's him? Jesus. Habakkuk. No, that's Jesus. Uh, and he might, that he might touch them and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. That's the word of the day. Indignant. And said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Here's what we see. When people, even the disciples of Jesus, so when this group, right, if we try to hinder children coming to Christ, it actually makes God angry. It makes him indignant. He cares about the children. They're a big deal to him. As I've seen someone point out, literally the same guy who walked in to a temple with a whip and people were running away in fear was the exact same person that a group of children were running into his arms to lay in his lap. Jesus was so soft on children. He showed them himself. He talks about how they see things of God that adults can't see. He says, if you want to know me, you're going to have to see me like they see me now. We have a lot to learn from that room. Amen? No, I'm sorry. We have a lot of things to remember from that room. A lot of things that maybe we forgot. That room is so important and it is so pivotal to the future of this church. And by the way, might I add, it is the fastest growing ministry in this church. Because at least the kids evangelizing, right? Um, well, actually, it's of the parents. Y'all won't stop. Uh, <laughs> that, that, it's the nursery that's the fastest growing ministry, for real. Uh, but let's just keep it rolling. I have people tell me, like, oh, man, my wife are trying. I was like, well, then go. Let's just keep it back. And, like, we'll grow this church one way or another, right? And, uh, uh, but C.S. Lewis said something that I think is so important. Um, C.S. Lewis says, since it is so likely that children will meet cruel enemies, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. Um, I think teaching children that darkness really is there is important, but what's better is to teach them that the knights are going to win in the end. That wasn't prophetic about Vegas, right, the knights, uh, but I mean, let it be if it needs to be. Uh, <laughs> um, that, that they need to hear about David overcoming Goliath. So they can remember that it's possible. They need to hear about Jesus overcoming death, hell, and the grave. Yes, it's important we teach about hell. But what's more important is that hell helps us understand the depths and heights of heaven. And it helps us understand how great Jesus is. And see, we forget those lessons. And then a child does something so beautiful and it changes everything. My ministry as a pastor started as a kid's pastor. Boop! I'm going to come down here and see if it works. Um, as a kid's pastor. And... Um, 
I'll never forget a time where a family came to church and their kids loved it. It was their first time ever at church. Their kids loved it. They had such a great time. And the parents actually came and picked up. And the parents were actually kind of honest with me and the guy I was working with at the time named Eric Burr. And they said, oh, yeah, we didn't really like church. We're probably like just kind of like. Uh, no, it's not really our thing. And their kids are like, but dad, because they had such a good time in kids, you know? And so next week their kids came back and we're like, oh my gosh, the kids just nagged and begged their parents and came back to kids ministry. And their kids were so sweet and so beautiful. It was awesome. And this service, uh, the next service, their parents came and grabbed me and Eric as the kids teachers and thanked us. And they said, see, because today we gave our lives to Christ and we never would have came back because your love for our children forced us back. And when we came back, Christ found us. Kids ministry isn't just important for the kids. Kids ministry changes the city. Kids ministry changes the heart of people. Imagine how this city would look if this was packed full of kids that were packing elementary schools. That would affect principals, that would affect teachers, that would affect janitors, and that would affect parents. Kids' ministry is such a big deal, and how we as parents raise our kids is so pivotal to the future of this country. Uh, I mean, this country, people look like, oh, millennials, and that. No, they call millennials the fatherless generation. Don't be surprised that they're acting crazy. Their parents didn't raise them, Right? And the parents that were there statistically took them out of church. So there was no church to speak into them. And they had to figure out their own way. But not these kids, right? This ministry is going to be one of the most important ministries of this church. We're forming things around the importance of this church. Just so you know, we're going to use tithe as you guys begin to tithe. And we're going to knock down that wall and make that room bigger so we can get the kids together and really start making the kids' ministry something fun and something exciting. It's a personal goal of mine. The end of January, February, March, and the beginning of April for about a month, I won't be preaching for that month. I'm handing it off to various of you, and I'm going into the kids' ministry because when I say it's one of our top five favorite ministries, I genuinely mean it. And so I'm going to go where the heart of the house is, and that's one of the places. And so uh, if you want to serve and you don't know where to go, we need kids teachers. Uh, we need someone who's going to love these children and pour into them because they matter. And Jesus has a special place in his heart for them. And y'all, wherever Jesus' heart is, I'm going to go. Amen. Third most important, th not third, these aren't in any particular order. Uh, reach and activate. What's reach and activate? That's, that's the actual name of our outreach ministry. It's actually just called reach and activate. Uh, and so I want to read you an overly long section of scripture, and it will actually literally preach for itself. I'm still going to say stuff because I'm me, but I don't need to, right? And let's go. Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 to 46. If y'all haven't read your Bibles today, you're welcome. I got you. Uh, and the king will say to those on his right, the king is God. What we're dealing with right now, let's talk context. This is the end times. As people are going, they're dying, and they're coming before God the Father. This is what God the Father is saying. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Which, by the way, that'll preach a whole sermon, but not this one. Uh, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? 
And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it also to me. Then he will say to those to his left, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will say to them, saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. When Jesus described people going to hell, he didn't mention salvation. He mentioned, what did you do? Because Christians do. Faith without works is dead. What is he saying? Well, God, we thought we knew you. Yeah, but your faith had no works. So it was dead. Our tagline for our church is on your street and in your city. Be at the outreaches. Be at the evangelisms. Tithing into a church that's out on the streets will not get you to where you want to go. Going to the events of the church you tithe to and getting on the streets with those who are lost and broken, that will take you where you need to go. I do genuinely believe we're going to see death of this big show church and i think what we're going to start seeing is life to churches that are scattered across the city and really helping those in need charles spurgeon has a quote and he said if sinners be damned at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies and if they perish let them perish with their arms wrapped around their knees imploring them to stay and if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exhortations and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Jesus didn't request the great commandment. It was a king giving a decree to his people. And I know that deep down, no one likes a belief that makes me go out and do something. But that's the only way we're going to get to where God's called us to be. Praying is important as so is doing doing is important and so is praying there's no one called to be a prayer warrior who prays and doesn't go out you're not a prayer warrior if you're not out there too but on the same note no one called you to be such a doer that you're just doing things that you don't know that god is calling you to do things we need to know him and do what he's called us to do and again the analogy i always use is with my wife saying i love her does nothing if i never bring her flowers if I never tell her how beautiful she is, if I never just sit down and look into her eyes and have a conversation with her. Typically, when marriages begin to fall apart, it's because we stop doing the things we did at first. And then the wife blames the husband and the husband blames the wife. But truly, no one kept pushing. But just like that is our walk with God. It's time to go out into the streets. Because we gave up our lives. Our lives are not our own. Um, the, the lead pastor of the altar church, Maddie Montgomery, um, he used to be a singer, yeah, or a screamer, really, in a, uh, in a hardcore band. And I didn't know Jesus, but I listened to For Today. It's actually one of the first times I ever heard the gospel, which threw someone screaming it at me. So before you go like, oh, that's not, you can't worship God and tell the gospel like that. I don't know, man. It, it helped. 
he got me to where I needed to be. But he has a line in the song, and he says, in the song called Pariah, and he says, you can't kill me, I'm already dead. And that's, he just repeats it for a while. You can't kill me, I'm already dead. And it's just kind of this powerful saying of like, listen, I get it why we can't go out in the streets because we have so much to do. But dead men don't have things to do. And that if we've really given up our lives and pick up our cross and follow Christ, we only have one thing to do because our new life only has one mandate. Follow God with all of our heart, soul, mind, body, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. And you can't do either of those unless you're on the streets. Reaching and activating and outreach is so important. It is a basic tenet to Christianity. It is not a request, and it is not something of, oh, when I, when I get closer to God, I'll do that. It is I'm saved. Paul was saved, and he walked out in the streets. When the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, the first thing they did was go out. Jesus prays for a man, and the man has legion in him, a demon. And when he cast the demon out, the man named Legion, who formerly known as like the artist formerly known as Legion, uh, says to Jesus, can I follow you? And Jesus says no, which is one of the most mind-blowing things in all of Scripture because if anyone in the world needed to sit at Jesus' feet a little longer, it was this guy. But Jesus says no, for you must go out and say what's been done. And then the Bible says that these people come and they kick Jesus out of the area. And when he circles back, Jesus later comes back to the city. It says all the people run and fall at his feet for having heard of his goodness. How did they hear? Him. One man who didn't know the gospel, one man who didn't know theology, one man who was still dealing with the fact that he had 2,000 demons in his body yesterday went out and preached the gospel so well and so fully that by the time the Messiah and all the people who have been sitting at Jesus' feet for three years showed up, they saw a revival like they had never seen before because it just takes one person saying you know what, I don't know all these things but I do know I've met Jesus and if I can't talk about anything else I can say hey, Jesus loves you you. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Jesus meets a woman at a well. And she begins and she runs after interacting with him. And she's probably a prostitute. And so this prostitute runs back into the city and says, come and meet the man who's shown me everything I've ever done. And they go and meet him. And the Bible says later they say, we believe because of your testimony. But now we believe for we have seen this prostitute living with a man still. She didn't run, clean up her life, and then tell everyone. She left that fool in the house. And she said, yeah, my house is still dirty, but Jesus is here. She didn't wait. She didn't clean. She got up and she went. Outreach is so pivotal and it is so basic. And we've made it this lofty thing. And we, people send me videos of Todd White going out, like, look, he cast out a demon. And it's like, cool, who cast out a demon? And they send me clips of Jeff Durbin, and he's, and he's debating someone, like, look how he told them. And I was like, then go tell them. And they, oh, I want to see this in the church. And it's like, no, you want me to do it. Go do it. Why'd you send me this? Send me a video of you casting out a demon. I would much prefer that. It's time to go. William Booth, one of the greatest quotes of all time. We're not waiting on a move of God. We are a move of God. Fourthly, neighborhood groups. I could sit there forever, but we'll move on. I could sit on that for so long. We're actually going to have a whole month where we talk about evangelism. So if you didn't get it today, 
We'll try again soon. Uh, neighborhood groups, neighborhood groups, small groups. Acts chapter 2, verse 46. Because someone had to go into Acts today if no one else was going to. <laughs> and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Listen, the temple was kind of our equivalent of a Sunday service. They went there every day. All I'm saying. Uh, but then they met together in their homes, small groups, broke bread. That breaking bread is a symbol of communion. They were talking doctrine and theology and eating together. Small groups. See, I'm asking, come on Sunday and sign up for a small group, which, by the way, sign-ups officially start today. Go to the info booth after service and sign up. Listen to me. I, I hate to break the news because I've seen this a thousand times. There's no marriage group. I don't know how that rumor began. There's two co-ed groups. They're not necessarily only for married people. They're just either gender can go. They're both ran by married people. So if you're married and want to get under one of those couples, I highly recommend it uh, because both of those marriages are ones I vouch for. Um, but, okay, well, uh, one of them says maybe. Um, <laughs> um, both of those ma married people are people I vouch for, but there is no, like, couples group. So go where you're called to go. Not, a, oh, this is the married group, so this is the one I belong in. Uh, but if you and your spouse need some together counseling, then pick one of them two groups and go sit together. Uh, they're meeting on two different days in the week, so whatever works for your schedule better, right? God is good. Uh, but anyway, uh, they're breaking bread daily. I'm only asking for one Sunday and one day throughout the week. We'll work towards seven. You radical madman. I know, it's, it's in the Bible, <laughs> so I'm just trying to, trying to do it. Um, <laughs> but it's so important, like something that uh, I've heard preachers start to say recently, and it's what if we just open up the Bible and read what they were doing and just assumed that we don't have to translate it to what makes us the most comfortable, but just assumed this is what we were supposed to do. What would the church look like if we actually met up daily and we actually liked meeting up daily? But, but, but my, my family, well, I know, I know. They had families too. They were Jewish. Even our Russian brethren aren't as tight-knit as Jewish culture is. And even they had to go daily. And see, I find that people are either really about the church or really about their families. And I do hate to break it to you because I think we are supposed to put our families and take care of them and love them. But biblically, if your family is higher up than your church family, you are actually out of line with how God described things. Uh, he really did say prefer the brethren. He didn't say unless your family's in town. He said prefer the brethren. Again, these might be uncomfortable truths, but the Bible says that I died and that I was born again into a new family. And so if we still see them as this is the main family, we don't understand born again or we're just not. Right, And I, I'm sorry if that sounds harsh, because I'm not saying ignore your family and hate them. Right, But what I am saying is there is, does need to be a clear preference, and I don't think it always necessarily happens, because that's not something anyone likes to teach, because it's awkward. See? You know what I'm saying? Like, you guys have been with me the whole time, and it's like, wait, I can't idolize my family? I'm done. Right? But it's like, wait a second, wait a second, but what does the gospel say? What did Jesus say? Who are my brothers and my mothers and my sisters? But these who are with me, what if we just opened the Bible and assumed what Jesus wrote he meant? 
What if we assumed that God wasn't trying to trick us and he actually said what was on his heart and what he wanted us to do? What if we assumed just for a moment that the life Jesus lived is the life he called us to live as we live in his name? What would that do to our lives? Think about it. What would that do to a city? How would a city change? It would change pretty freaking radically. <laughs> and as Jesus called his church, I love the message translation, even though I'm not about the message. I'm, I actually, let me say, I don't like the message paraphrase. I think it's terrible. Uh, but one thing it says that's beautiful is Jesus looks at his people and he says, you'll be a peculiar people. And I think we lose the weight of that uh, because Jesus says, y'all are misfits in the message. <laughs> and it's awesome. Peculiar means only found in a certain place. Uh, here's the interesting thing about being peculiar. Uh, when you go in, we, we think peculiar is weird. Uh, but peculiar means it's only found in certain spots. Like, have you ever been somewhere and you smell and you're like, oh, I know where I'm at. Or I know where I'm going. Have you ever walked into a hospital and smelled and been like, okay, clearly I'm in a hospital now. That's that smell is peculiar to a hospital. And so when he's saying you're a peculiar people, he's saying you're going to live a way where it's like, so these are Christians, <laughs> right? <laughs> What's that smell? Yeah. Christians? Yeah, y'all smell funny, right? And, and but black shower for real though. Um, but, but it's so important that we're peculiar to his kingdom. And kingdom doesn't live like the world. I know we would love to continue to live like our family called us to live when we found Jesus, but then you're not peculiar. You're just like you lived when you were when you found Jesus. But there is a lifestyle that is only found amongst God's people. And I'm not saying be perfect today, and if you don't cut everything now and run, then you're gone. But I'm saying let's start reading our Bibles and going to our God and just saying, you know what? Maybe I don't need to translate through eight different lenses so I can feel comfortable with this verse. Maybe I can just read this and go, I hate this. God help me, but this is your will. And so I'm going to go. Amen. Thank you. Because <laughs> it got awkward. Um, <laughs> it got real awkward. Y'all give Jesus a shout. <laughs> Y'all give Jesus a shout one more time. The same Jesus who said prefer the brethren. All right, so let's go into prayer now. <laughs> All right, last one. And this is prayer. This is my last point. Um, unless I bring it back because I feel like, you know, whenever it gets real awkward, like that's the thing I like to just dig at. But I'm that kind of weird guy where I'm like, oh, everyone's going to hate this sermon. I'll make him hate it worse. Um, prayer. Prayer. There is no major movement of God that has ever begun in any other way besides prayer. Jesus would go for 40 days and pray and fast. The Bible says that Jesus would wake up in the wee hours, right? Right, it's in the book of Mark, it specifies while it was still dark out. And interestingly enough, what I love about that section of scripture is it says that Jesus rose to pray while it was still dark out, like was customary to him. As in Jesus stayed waking up when it was dark out. <laughs> the sun is like, oh, the sun's not out? Going back to bed. Uh, but Jesus would take that opportunity to go pray. And Jesus would get alone before his God, and, and he would go pray. And, and before Jesus did anything important, before the transfiguration, he was, he was praying. And before the cross, he was praying. And, and, and it was so pivotal. It was the most important thing that he did. Um, we're not just called to pray for our lives. I think that's why half of you find prayer so boring. 
says, I pray about the things I need, and then I walk away. Um, but 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23 is my favorite verse on prayer. It says, moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. See, this section's crazy because this man blatantly says that if I didn't pray for you, it would be a sin. And because we're ending on a downer because of how you all reacted to uh, groups, uh, I'll just keep it down. Uh, did you sin today by not praying for people? Were you in sin yesterday by not praying for people? I, I don't know. Ask, though. I mean, if we're already here, I had no plans on saying that, but I was like, let's go. I'll just keep digging at it, and my wife will come and be nice next week, and then people forget, and they'll give me a chance the week after, and I'm back, baby. Um, it's been a while since I lost you guys like this. Uh, it's been a while since I felt like the, whoo It's been a while since I could. Um, but ask yourselves that, because 1 Thessalonians 5.17, not a verse I gave Mark, uh, it actually says to pray without ceasing. So if... It's a sin to not pray for you, and I'm supposed to pray without ceasing. Then after my five minutes of praying for me, what's next? Everybody else. And again, uh, oh, my God, that scared me. Um, maybe, maybe, again, if let's just take the Bible literally, and maybe when Jesus says to pray without sinning, without ceasing. I mean, we should also pray without sinning. I mean, I stand firm. Uh <laughs> Uh, but what, maybe we should assume that when the Bible says to pray without ceasing, maybe it means to pray without ceasing. Well, I can't pray all day. You'd be surprised what you can do once you've done it long enough. That's like my son, right? Like He looked at me he's like, I can't walk all day. He's like, not yet. Like, my son will hold his head up for a while, and then, like, it falls down. And it's like, hold your head up. And he's like, well, I can't hold my head up all day, can I? Like, like is that even possible? I mean, the rest of us are doing it. <laughs> I can't pray all day. I, I know. You'll have some days. But someday it'll be up. <laughs> and just because something's difficult doesn't mean that it's not pivotal. Right? Just because something's difficult doesn't mean that it's not necessary. Just because something's difficult doesn't mean that it's not God. And maybe when Jesus went and prayed for 40 days and 40 nights, maybe that wasn't a, wow, look at what Jesus did. Maybe it was an invitation to go do likewise. Because sometimes he would bring his disciples. And then he would pray. What were they doing the whole time? Sleeping sometimes. Uh, but I'd like to think that sometimes they prayed. <laughs> He seemed pretty put off when they didn't pray with him that time, so maybe that means they prayed the times before, right? Something interesting uh, when the, they call it the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. Well, we only have that section of Scripture because the disciples asked. He didn't say, let me teach you on prayer. They say, God, can't, Jesus, can we pray like you pray? And he goes, well, let me teach you how. He didn't say this is just for me. He said, yeah, actually, I'm glad you asked. Let me show you how I do it and come along. William Coper. He said, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon their knees. 
Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon their knees. You know, prayer is powerful. You know, prayer changes things. Uh, anyone who's been here long enough knows I am pretty big on predestination. I'm pretty big on God knows all things, that we don't get to change the will of God, uh, that when God says something will be, it actually will be, uh, and that with a few times where we see certain things where it seems like God shifted, it, it seems to me more scriptural that that Jesus, God knew that they were going to do this certain thing, and it was all just part of his plan to teach them a lesson. But let's not forget that every time we do see God appear to change his mind, it is always and only due to prayer. I'm going to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, but, but what if there's 10? Okay, see, here, here's what I'm really praying for. My, my nephew's there. So what if there's five? God, don't get mad at me. But what if there's one? Get your nephew out of there. And I'm going to blow the place up. God says to Moses, go from here. I'm going to forsake the people. And Moses says, God, 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 don't kill the people. What I really believe he was teaching Moses, you need to have a heart for these people. Because Moses was getting mad, the Bible teaches us. And so God comes at him pretty drastic. And, and he says, no, 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 God, 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 protect the people. I, I love the people. And he goes, oh, you do? Then we'll bring them along. But we, the moments that it seems like God is shifting... It's always because people prayed. Prayer is so important. Prayer does direct things. Prayer does guide things. I love what, oh, uh, Rizm, Ravi Zacharias' underdude who came here. What's his name? Abdul Murray, my boy. Abdul Murray, uh, he has a quote that I absolutely love. He says, prayer doesn't change the heart of God. Prayer lines our heart up with God's. Right, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. That's in prayer. God said, I'm going to destroy Nineveh. And Jonah goes, takes a long way, but he gets there. Jonah goes and he preaches, hey, God's going to blow everything up. And they go, oh, dang it. And so they fast. I mean, the king goes nuts and he's like, even the donkeys are fasting. Like he legit makes it. Like everyone is fasting. It says he puts on ashes and sackcloth, even on the animals. So there was a donkey wearing sackcloth, and he has ashes on his head. And it's like, what's up with the donkey? He's like, oh, he's, he's fasting. God's going to take care of us. Like, like it's, it's ridiculous, but it's the Bible, right? It's like a cow rolls out, and he's in a sackcloth. And it's like, what, what is this? It's like, oh, he's praying for me, or he's going he gonna to become a steak right quick. And so it's like, okay, as long as I'm covered in ash, they're not going to eat me. So I'm going to pray, right? Obviously not. But, uh, but they pray, and it says that God relented. Because they prayed. Theology's kind of slippy on that one, but uh, but there, we really do see that prayer does affect things. Prayer does make a big deal, and prayer actually does shake the foundations of things. Um, and I want to end in this because all of service, all of Sunday, all of kids, all of groups, all of outreach, and all of prayer, these are places for us to come together and be together. I shared it recently, and I want to share it again. One of my favorite sections of all in Scripture is when Peter gets in prison. And when Peter gets out of prison, I think it was last week I said this, but, you know, I'm going to run the basics. And he, he finds a house, and he's on the run because he's escaped from prison. He's trying to find the church, and he knocks on the door, and it opens, and it says they were all gathered and praying for him. See, one of the worst nights of Peter's life was an opportunity for the church to come together and pray. What if sometimes bad things happen so that the church will come together?
There was a man who used to come to our, our church. His name was Stephen. My son was almost named after him. My second one will be. And uh, you heard it here first. So if anyone steals it, it's because they're stealing from me. Um, it's a man named, uh, a man named Stephen. And, uh, and he, he came to our church for a while, really started getting touched, started getting moved. And then uh, he was riding his motorcycle home, and he got hit up his motorcycle, and he passed away. He was one of our young adults. It was the, the first time ever as a pastor that I had to navigate the loss of someone. And someone so young, was he 23 or something like that? And he was just gone. It was freaky because when we met him and knew him and talked with him, he was so called and he was so gifted. And there was so much on him, and it was like, and then it was just gone. And, and there was no way for us to be consoled. We were all just sad. My wife and I looked and we're like, well, how do we handle this? And uh, we did the only thing we knew. I literally sent a mass text out to everyone in our young adult ministry and said, everyone to my house tonight. And our house was packed and it was uncomfortable and it was awkward and it was hot. And we played worship and we prayed and we drew closer. And by the end, we were laughing, remembering memories of him and having just a good time. And I forget someone who's actually still here, but I won't use names because I want to embarrass people. Young adults get a little finicky sometimes. Um, said, I've never been in a church that's handled a situation like this. And the only reason why I responded like that was because of the Peter situation. And I was like, well, maybe bad things happen to bring us together. And we're together. And we're unified. And that situation wasn't a negative in our lives. We didn't lose something. We, we actually gained something. And God used that terrible thing as an opportunity for something beautiful to happen in the midst of his people. Prayer is important. Unity is important. The church is important. Guys, we have prayer here once a month. It is not for the anointed and the cleaned and the ready. It is for everybody. And I've heard that, well, if people who are messed up come to prayer... The whole prayer is going to become about them. And it's like, well, that's what intercession is. It's praying for the broken. So come broken. Come all who are lost. And come all who are weary. Because we want to pray for you. And then when you're strong, you'll start praying for others. And you won't be mad that someone broken comes in the room. You'll be excited because it's an opportunity to show the love of God. Um, but I want to end with this quote by Judah Smith uh, in his book, How's Your Soul? I just finished it. Um, we aren't designed to be alone. We are relational beings. No matter how introspective or shy or private we might be, we are all designed for community, and we are meant to benefit from one another. I'm going to read this one more time. We aren't, uh, by the way, you can, oh, <laughs> my God. Oh, my Atlantis. Um, we weren't designed to be alone. We are relational beings. No matter how introspective or shy or private we might be, we are all designed for community, and we are meant to benefit from one another. This year, for vision, we are going to run the basics. And if how today went, I think we'll have some rough patches, some uncomfortable moments where we have to come face to face with the fact that is this, is this really a basic and do I really want to do this? Jesus said, count the cost. And again, he wasn't saying something fancy. He was saying, if you want to come into the kingdom, it'll actually cost something. So count it and see if you want to pay it. Because uh, if you don't, you're not of the kingdom. I know that sounds harsh, 
the Bible also says to walk out your salvation, right? So there is a process, right? I'm not saying give it all today or you're going to hell because uh, that's not what God said to me. And God spent years walking me through my mess. And he spent years teaching me the importance of community. And he spent years teaching me to let my anger go and to quit being so prideful. He spent years working that on me. He spent years, and he's still spending years dealing with those things. And, and I don't feel like I'm falling short of my call because I'm not perfect. Because as long as I keep walking, I know God will continue to walk with me. Uh, but what I am saying is that's what this year is. In this year, Boulevard Church is going to walk. We're not going to run. We're not going to sprint. We're going to walk. We're going to walk through the city. We're going to walk through these pews. We're going to walk into each other's lives. We're going to walk to the lost and broken. We're going to find our footing and figure what, how is God wanting us to navigate this situation? All I know is that everything this church will do will be to either benefit Sunday service or better put, to benefit the local church, to benefit our kids' ministry, to benefit Reach and Activate, to benefit groups, and to benefit prayer and communal prayer. For those of you who choose to come along on this adventure, I'm excited, happy to have you. Uh, for those of you who feel like this isn't your call, um, that's actually okay. But don't try to change things. It's okay to step off. And I don't mean that like step off, right? It's okay to step off the bus. Um, because this will go smoother if everyone here has decided, I'm going to pick this up. Because nothing's worse than carrying something heavy and one person walks away, then everything's got to navigate and remove. But, but really say, God, what is your call in my life? I mean, if some of the things I said that were biblical make you want to go, like, that's actually, you should stay, right? But if it's just like, this isn't the call, then that's okay. But this is our call. I'm making it plain. So that we can run it together. Uh, because without vision, we'll cast off restraint. And in truth, vision is restraining, right? Because the implication is that casting off of the restraint is bad. It's the vision that's restraining. Vision restrains us. Beautiful Eulogy has an album and it's called, is it Electric Kite? Satellite Kite. And in it, they just have a clip of a sermon. And he talks about a kite and how it flies in the sky. And the kite is soaring. And the kite is being held down by a string from the arms of the person moving through the wind. And he says that the temptation for the, the kite would be to say, I feel restrained by the string holding me down. That if I could just be released from the string, I could soar higher and be more free. But he says that anyone who knows how a kite works knows that once the string has been cut, well, it's the tension in the string that's keeping the kite flying. And so when the string gets cut, the kite might soar for a minute or two, but it will crash and it is done flying. At that point, it's just falling with style. And, and, and that's the point. Restraint is what causes us to soar. Restraint is what causes us to fly. 
It's that thing, I hate that pastor always holds me to this. Well, that's, as long as you stay with that and you hold on to that restraint, you'll soar in a way you couldn't without the restraint. Restraint is good. Restraint is healthy. Restraint keeps you in the clouds. It doesn't ground you. And this is how our church will be restrained this year. In the absolute desire to build a church, build up children, build up the lost and the broken and those in jail and the orphans and the widows uh, because we only have one orphanage around here and it is packed to capacity. They can't take anyone else. No one's adopting and children are supposed to be there for 10 days and they've, some have been there for well over 100 days. The orphans, the widows. I used to work at a retirement home. It is some of the most depressing places ever because no one visits anymore. The widows. And just prayer. And we'll build. And if helping those people and if a building that thing is a restraint, then thank God that he's restrained me. Because I don't want to, I don't want to just live. Right? I don't want to just be alive. I want what I do to be meaningful. I guess as the old quote goes, I don't want to be alive, I want to live.